they're enjoying themselves too much on the airfield, get all that air crew up here to come and observe this from five miles away. Five miles away from an atom bomb? You've got to be joking. No. And to this day, and I can still see the skeleton of my fingers through the whole through that flash when that flash went off. Absolutely incredible. You wouldn't have yeah. believed it. Welcome to the Avro Heritage Museum podcast. The museum is located near Manchester in the UK and you can find more details at avroheritagemuseum.co.uk The English electric Cambro was designed as a direct replacement for the wartime de Havilland Mosquito and entered service with the RAF in 1951. In total, Avro built 75 Cambros at Woodford during the 1950s. I speak with squadron leader John Robinson, AFC, who was a RAF pilot who was tasked to fly cameras into the mushroom clouds of nuclear tests in order to capture samples. He tells of his recruitment into the RAF, initial training, his cloud sampling missions and his experiences of watching the tests from as little as five miles away. I was honoured that the British Nuclear Test Veterans Association invited me to their annual reunion and enabled me to capture John's story. I'm delighted to welcome Squadron Leader John Robinson to the Avro Heritage Museum podcast. Went in the father's business for a short while and then I discovered that by this time he had a dairy business running in the Den- what we call the Denji 100 and he, you know, he had me organised to you know, run the milk run. Then I discovered I was delivering bottles of milk for 365 days a year. And that didn't appeal at all. <laughs> so, um, I knew I was going to have to do national service. So I thought, well, what can I make out of that? I'd like to go flying if possible. Well, it wasn't in those days possible to become, an, well, it was, but very, very rarely a national service pilot. So... I thought, right, what's the easiest way? I'll go for a short service commission in the Royal Air Force, and that that might get me straight in. And sure enough, I passed the acceptance tests at Hornchurch, the aircrew selection centre there. Um, Yeah, they said, start start when you like. Well, I was only just turned 18 when I started at uh, Cardington in in the Royal Air Force, and that, that was the initial thing before we got sent off to Cranwell in initial training school at Cranwell, not, not the college. And uh, did the, that's how all the training started, in a quick right. way. So by the end of um, the summer of 52, I was ready to go on to pilot training. Yeah. Right, mm. right. What, what aircraft were you trained on? Right, well, you, the next move was, I mean, straight away there was no rest from um, the end of the, course, the initial training school course to the flying training school course, which was done in Feltwall, up in Norfolk, just on the edge of Norfolk. Um, and we started on Prentices, Percival Prentice, and then the dear old North American Harvard um, 2B, which were, they were the two aeroplanes they had there, a grass airfield. I'd never, ever flown before. I'd never been in an aeroplane before. I didn't have a clue what it was, I was going to expect. And this sort of burly instructor gets inside me and said, well, OK, Robinson, put your, show, put your shoot on. I, nobody had shown me how to put a parachute on for a starter. <laughs> You'd think that would be lesson one, <laughs> wouldn't you? Well, so I got over that and a bit nervous by this. I mean, he was starting to wind me up a little bit. But anyway, off we launched in this Prentice, which is uh, a lumber, to say the least. Everything is done at 70 knots in the Prentice. It takes off at 70 knots, it climbs at 70 knots, it cruises not much faster, and then it descends and lands about that speed. So that was it. It wasn't an easy aeroplane to fly. Aerobatics were just a non-starter. And were you a natural pilot, would you say? I would say it came very easily to me, yes. Um, And I think that's why I tended to go along with the flow uh, of people and and watch some of my colleagues struggling what are you struggling about? That seemed very easy to me. And I found that easy. Um, if, it, if my instructor gave me a, a good demonstration of what something was on, then I could do it straight away. And he, he you know, 
especially when we went on to the Harvard, where we were going to do proper aerobatics and loops and barrels and all sorts of things. And I had a, a good instructor there who suddenly said, ah, I've got a, a candidate here who can probably do the job without, without too much problem. And I, I was agreeably surprised because I came away with, I think, with an above the average assessment. So it, I couldn't have been that bad. Halfway through that course, we um, lost half our course. All of a sudden, the Korean War was no longer a requirement. And I, I was obviously in the top half of grades and things. And they, that, uh, they kept me on. And I think I found up, wound up third or second in the course. And uh, I, I was well, very pleased with what we are. We only started with 30 of us, three, four of those of which were Burmese. And, right. Yeah, um, being trained with us. So we didn't wind up with very many of us getting their wings on, I think it was June the 2nd or something like that, in, in 1953. Right. Yeah. And where, where was your first operational post? Well, we went on. Then I, then I had to do a jet conversion. Okay. And that was on Meteors, uh, Meteor 7s and Meteor F4s, um, down at Western Zoiland in Somerset. And that was a quick six months whiz through there and on to then they said, ah, okay, young man, well, you're a bit of a tear away. You might think you're going on to fighters, but no, you're going on to bombers, on to bomber command. So I said, okay, had to accept what I was given. But that time, of course, the Canberra was the new shiny vehicle that uh, the RAF had got off, aircraft that the Air Force had got. And it was second to none, as we all know in the world, and how, how well it did ultimately do. The Americans bought it and built it, and I'm, I believe they're still flying one they of them. NASA, I think, are still flying, flying. them because yeah. there's nothing like it. Yeah, that's right. And this, this was another point later on that we often found that we having to do the jobs. Afghanistan war was another one where the Canberra had to do the job which the Americans couldn't do. And... Uh, yeah, th th those are the sort of things. So I, I wasn't too worried about it. And I was sent off to Bassinborn, which was the um, operational conversion unit just inside Cambridgeshire. Um, and there we are, we're going to be paired up. And they said, right, we're going to tame you, young man. You're a bit headstrong. So I thought, oh, really? And how are you going to do this? They gave me a flight sergeant navigator <laughs> who had wartime experience and everything else. And dear old Ken... He, uh, he, yeah, he looked after me. Well, yeah, we, we, we could, we got on well. He was a quiet guy, but, you know, I was being looked after <laughs> in, in the nicest possible way. And it was good. It was good. And we whizzed through that course. It should have been, um, three months long. We did it in two. And I was then onto an operational squadron within two years of joining the Air Force. Wow. Now, you compare that with what goes on today. Yeah. It's uh, on a really operational aeroplane, and it, it was quite astonishing. What and was what, what was the role of the Canberra during, as a bomber during the Cold War? It was a light bomber. Um, yeah, we were using World War II weapons, you know, um, 1,000-pound bombs. We were, that's all we were armed with. Very, very primitive na navigation aids, and... Uh, G and GH were our main two radar navigation aids, and that was those are the two things that we relied on. Right. We hadn't got anything else much in the air, other than we could really climb to a big altitude and outclimb any fighter that was around in the, in those days. And uh, some of the exercises we did um, with uh, fight uh, against fighter command, where we would go out in strength a whole load of cameras and then come in from the east as if you know the that's where the enemy was coming from. And we watched the fighters come up, especially on these daytime exercises. You could watch the fighters come up and said, can't you get any higher, chaps? <laughs> In the end, they caught on and they said, no, you guys have been flying far too high. You're now restricted about 35,000 yeah, yeah, feet. It's not fair. <laughs> not unfair. <laughs> and, and what was the maximum altitude of the Canberra? I, I discovered it later on um, when we ferried out to Australia. We used to do what was called a cruise climb, because in those days, no other aircraft was ever going to fly at our level. And we used to start about 40,000 feet and just set the power and the speed and let the aeroplane climb as it burned fuel. And we, I got up to 57,000 feet. Wow. Well, yes, and it is wow, because you're, you've got a problem there, Ian, where you're... Stalling speed is, is, is re reducing purely because you're flying the aeroplane. At the same time, you're 
Mach number, which you mustn't exceed, are going to coincide, and you're in a real pinnacle there mm. of uh oh, a control either way. You would, you know, so you're just it, sort of teetering on, yeah, the, on teetering the edge. On the edge. Yeah. Um, it was known as Coffin Corner. It was, it was well known for not phenomena that you know, that's what happened. You could tumble out of the sky unless you were very careful. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that that was my learn. You know, on the altitude of the camera, that was our Canberra B6 as opposed to the B2s, which were on on 44 Squadron, which I was on at the time. Yeah, that was that was it, um, really. And that was based in the UK. That yeah, was that was UK based in that. Yes, initially I went to 100 Squadron at Wittering, just off the A1. Then, because they're going to make that into Bomber Command Development Unit, they said, ah, okay, you better go up the road to Cottesmore um, and join 44 Squadron. And we did. And it it was all happening at Cottesmore. Squadrons had been moved in from Coningsby. Our squadron had been moved in from Coningsby. I I was met there by the squadron commander, Mio, a very junior pilot officer, um, wondering what was going on. And it was all, yeah. My God, this is what, what's this all I'm in, in for? It, it was great. And, uh, I, I learned a lot there at Cottesmore and we, we flew quite a lot of times in, in some atrocious weather and things. I had the odd incident, but that, that was it with a, a Canberra, which in its infancy was still giving problems and teething problems. But they, they were resolved. And of course, it was still a lovely aeroplane. We were allocated, once we got on the squadron, we allocated another navigator who was really the radar guy more than anything. But he was also the bomb aimer if necessary. Um, when we were first um, teed up at the uh, operational conversion unit at Bassinbourne, um, the, my navigator, you know, Ken, the flight sergeant, and I were, we really were rushed around. There was one day, um, in particular, where we dropped 32 practice bombs individually around. It was day, a day and night exercise. We were armed with 16 bombs, go off them and drop them. We did reasonable results. We were, it was all visual bombing, by the way. And then we went off and did the same thing at night with another 16 bombs. And they said, that's never been done before. 32 bombs in a day. <laughs> and how was your accuracy at night? Well, not bad, actually, because they were lit, they were, the target was lit. Oh, okay. And it, it was a similar exercise to what you were doing during the day. So yeah. it, it was no problem at yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what was, what was the, the next posting? Well, the next posting, um, we would then get round to November, no, sorry, the autumn of 55, about October. And this notice came out, um, you know, crews required for special duties in Australia. And they were nominated as special duties. We hadn't a clue what it was about. Um, bachelors only to apply. Well, none of us were married in my crew. And my two bright navigators said, you're taking us, buddy. And I thought, oh, well, how? Because I've only got six months of my four-year commission left. Ah, well, that can be fixed, surely. There's a bit of paper here which says you you could apply for an extension. Oh, so I signed this off. And believe it or not, ooh, beginning of November, the posting at my 12-year direct commission came through, and within 24 hours, our posting on to this squadron that was going to go to Australia. Wow. So you originally <laughs> signed on for three. Off, and I'd then. signed on for four. And, uh, right. yeah. And amazing, isn't it? What could be done well it's when very, needs must. very quick work for the RAF. <laughs> yeah. think. They obviously really wanted you uh, yeah. out there. So well, they were desperate for crews that weren't yeah. were so single. Yeah. You know, bachelor yeah. boys. Yeah. And, and when were you aware of the, the nature of the, the missions you were Right. Well, on? once we got down, well, we went back to Western Zoyland where I'd done my meteor training. And so I was on familiar territory as far as going around the pubs were concerned. Um, and I could guide the guys around to all the skittle alleys and everything else that, <laughs> that were rife around Somerset in those days. Um, and we you know, got to know. And, of course, eventually we herded, herded together. Um, guys came from all over what was Bomber Command who could make it or get crews together to come and do it, do the job, all single guys. And we were herded together one day um, in, in the crew room and told what it was all about. Um, ah, really, what the special duties are, 
going and flying through atom bomb and H-bomb clouds with our cameras. Um, everybody was sort of, yes. <laughs> that sounds a bit of an adventure, but at least it's um, going to be a big adventure and everything else. We weren't aware at that time that other people are already done this flying through clouds um, with the dear old Canberra B2, which I'd been used to. Um, and, you know, there were things that happened and that was never really passed on to us what it was all about. We were then beginning to be re-equipped, re well, the, the squadron was being reformed with Canberra B6 aircraft, which had you know, considerably more power a lot more fuel on board because the wings were into integral fuel tanks, which they weren't on the B2. So it had a lot more range and a lot more versatility all around. They were also fitted with special filters within the air conditioning system to take out a lot of the nasty stuff that could come in if we're going through, going through these clouds. So as far as the aircraft frame was concerned, they made it as safe as it possible was in those days, for the, for the air crew to survive uh, and do those sort of things. You know, when we were first told at Western Zoyland, before we even thought about you know, ferrying out to Australia, um, discussed what was going to happen to the aircraft, because we, we hadn't a clue, you know, how contaminated they were going to get and everything. And uh, they said, well, cripes, you're going to take a hell of a lot to get clean. And uh, this, you know, this, this needs to be sorted. Uh, how are we going to do it? And one, one bright spark says, well, we can fly them over to the, the Australian, the bite, the bite, South Australia, jump, and somebody will jump out and let them crash into the sea. And we said, yeah. And who's going to do that? Well, the pilot. We don't need, you don't need navigators for that job. <laughs> uh, and that, that was some, some bright sparks idea of, of one way of disposing of the problem. Yeah. yeah. But it didn't come to that. We weren't, didn't seem to be too worried about it all. You know, it was an, a big adventure for all of us. Oh. I was by far the youngest guy on the squadron by about three years or something like that. But yeah. And were you given an option to decline when they told you the nature? I don't the... think it came into it. My my my, my guys said we're, we're going. And I thought that's, that's they well, were just I, I, I've got of a... sun, sea, sand. And, yeah, well, uh... that's it. it. It was we were in that era where flying. Everybody wanted to fly. Yeah. It, it was yeah. The enthusiasm for flying was still there, and you, and you have the opportunity. Let's do it. What a minute. Yeah, and you think you're invincible at that age. Of course you do. As, yeah. as well, in this yeah. sexy aircraft you're flying yeah. around. Yeah, this lovely well. aeroplane. Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Queen has you know, supplied for me, and yeah. thank you. And I, I, I'm enjoying flying it. It yeah. really was good. Uh, and how did you get down there? Did you fly the aircraft down there in stages, or were you... Oh, yes. We've got 10 or 11 crews are, are on it who... All had to be, most of them had come off from flying the B2, uh, none of them from the B6, which was not a great deal of difference to it. Uh, it handled very similarly, except you were aware of more power, especially at the lighter weights. Um, and we, we settled down, getting familiar with that, started doing exercises where we'd have even more limited navigation aids, um, using um, uh, single lights on for a runway at night because we didn't know where in the outback of Australia we'd be landing. And so we, you know, made sure you always landed on the right-hand side of the light. <laughs> it would a bit embarrassing the other side was a load of, of a field or something. Um, and that, that you know, we did things like that and got, got really familiar with the, with the aeroplane. Then the first part of the squadron, um, all bar two crews, went, went off to Australia straight away to do the Montebello. Um, exercise there, which is part of Mosaic, as we know now. And uh, th they all went off and did the two bombs up on the northeast coast of um, Australia. We were left behind to receive two, three more brand new aeroplanes, uh, delightful ones. And the one I was, uh, um, uh, I got my hands on, nobody else flew it for three months. 
Nobody allowed. That's my aeroplane. <laughs> really positioned it really well. Don't you dare touch it anymore. <laughs> um, and, that, yeah, and then it came to beginning of July, 56, where we uh, go off to, to Australia. And uh, so, we set off to Australia. It, an interesting exercise, going to Australia there. Um, one stage a day, so it was very leisurely flying because we flew from right straight out from western Zoyland down to a place called Idris in Tripoli in, in Libya a night stop there um, and that that was the start of an exercise because we met up with the Hastings crew who also doing the same route as us to Australia we said oh that's strange but never mind and then they were using the same staging posts as we were so anyway we said oh well have, have a beer and we had a beer and everything else and they, they went to bed because they were getting up early to go off and to Habania which was the next stop in Iraq and uh, off they went and trundle trundle and left aeroplanes sitting on the ground there all still covered up uh, the third aeroplane was being flown by a wing commander from RAF Pembroke but uh, and his crew um, but anyway the three of us were there unwrapped them they were already refueled ready to go climbed up Went trundling off very high level, thank you very much, looking down for this this Hastings. It was obviously trundling along. But we know we'd we'd get to Habania and land and then put them away to bed for the night, covers on them and everything else. And eventually, yeah, we'd go straight to the the bar and the the Hastings crew would land and say, those three aeroplanes were interested when we departed. And you bloody well got here and you've been to the beer before we have. <laughs> and that's how it went on because we went on from there to Karachi. The Karachi was a bit of a nasty one. And we hit some really nasty weather going into Karachi. Um, and I got a cracked navigation light cover. And fortunately, uh, the, the staging post had some spares and things. So they were able to fix my aircraft straight away. But we couldn't land at Moripur, which we were supposed to land, which was the RAF base. Um, we had to land at the Karachi International because of flooding of the runways and everything else. It really was horrendous. And a, a terrible journey into uh, to Moripur, where we were obviously going to be lodged, uh, around the place called Fish Corner, where it was a million inhabitants in the most ghastly conditions. Don't you dare break down, coach. <laughs> Awful, it really was. Uh, anyway, we went on from there to um, Ceylon, to what was Nagombo in those days, and Ceylon in those days. Another good night stop. Um, and then the next one was on to, straight on to Changi, Singapore. What is yeah, the big airfield now? But uh, that was Changi, RAF Changi in those days. And uh, went there, we cut, had a couple of three nights there. Just as, because we needed all the rest for the hard work we've done going flying down. Absolutely. <laughs> and that, that was it. Um, sort of we're there. The next was quite a long flock down to Darwin. And that, that was a long, longish leg. It um, took, you know, well over four hours, four or four and a half hours, five hours. Um, landed at Darwin very pleasant and everything else. And I, I landed mine. We parked the aeroplane. And then this wing commander who was flying the, our spare aircraft came up and says, I'm taking your aeroplane on from here. I no, but, 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 but you can't. I've ordered the only one that flies it. He said, no, I'm taking it. This one's broken. And he managed to break it somehow. And, and uh, it, it was some, I'm not sure exactly what was unserviceable about it, but it wasn't flyable in any way. So I was left stuck with this heap up in Darwin for about another six days before we could then move off down to Pierce Field, just north of Perth in Western Australia. And that was it. We eventually got there and uh, helped out on, on what, what it was all about. And that, that was good. Uh, we got there on a good trip and we were well received, you know, back, back into the squadron proper and proper. And we, we enjoyed that. Yeah. And, and how were you briefed in terms of what you had to do and what were you told to expect? What were you told to expect when you were flying these missions into the mushroom cloud? Um, we weren't given a great deal because we weren't sure on these bombs. The smaller ones they'd done at Montebello's, they were quite time cone. They weren't very big ones at all. And then they were, they were moving on to four 
well, no, tests at a place called Maralinga. We, we, we'd moved across to Edinburgh Field, South Australia, from Adelaide. Anyway, we landed there, but then Maralinga was another hour's flight up the road, so we transit backwards and forwards to it all. Edinburgh Field had been built in the early 50s for really a, a backup for Woomera uh, and supplying Woomera with, with all the heavy heavy duty stuff which they couldn't get into Woomera, into the yeah, Woomera. And Maralingos and then adjunct for it, that was a brand new strip as well and quite a lengthy one because they'd built it to take V-Force aircraft if necessary. Right. And didn't know that. We weren't quite sure what it was going on. The first one or two went off. The, obviously the boss did the first penetration, came back and said, well, um, you, you don't go straight into it. It is rising up, that's for sure, because then you're going to hit some current and, and you, you don't want to know about those. So when advised from the ground, okay, you're clear to go in and collect samples at this stage. Um, that's when we used to do the penetration. That's the best part we got. And it wasn't a great, great drama. I spent, when I did mine, I think about 12 and a half minutes in, in the cloud. Um, they, in the end, they consider, ah, oh, yes, you've probably had enough radiation for you now. <laughs> Come home, young man. Yeah. And of course, coming home, we land in, obviously, a very contaminated aeroplane and taxi to a special part. A ground crew came out all wrapped up in, in their garb. And you're just in regular flying suits. Re- regular flying suits, but using 100% oxygen the whole time. And that, well, that was the big thing as well. Made sure that we were breathing pure oxygen. So that, that, that was the safe, safe part, in, so we didn't inhale anything. Um, with, with a mask covering mouth and nose, it, it was okay. Then we sort of, as I say, landed and... The boys, the ground crew came in, opened the door for, uh, for us and masked all the surrounds to the door with, with sealing paper so that we could dive out. And uh, I wanted to turn, I let the two navigators go first, made sure the injection seats were made safe before they did. And uh, I left the wheel brakes off because the guys were going to take tow the aeroplane away to the far side of the airfield so it could cool off to, so that they, then could be worked on, but that was going to take a week just to wow. sit there and cool, as they said, <laughs> from the radiation that was on it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and what were the? How were they gathering data on the radiation? Were there sensors on the wings? Yeah. Now what we had was special. Um, uh, well, what were they? Covers, um, metal cup, metal cup, metal uh, over the nose of the tip tanks. We always flew with the tip tanks on because we needed the extra range. And in those was an actuator which opened, had an opening, opening the front of the, these, well, this cover, um, that, which had the same shape, obviously, as the tip tanks. And, uh, and then when we were in the thing, then the navigators, one of the, one of the navigators operated the switches and the two vents opened and all the stuff was sucked into filter, pa- filter papers there for them to do. Uh-huh. Yeah. As simple as that. <laughs> yeah. Was it just like flying through a regular cloud, really, at that Not, point? Well, no, well, some clouds can be regular, some can well, be... Well, yeah, as, what as, is a regular <laughs> cloud, I guess, is the, is the question there. Yeah, because the, the lot I did in Car- you know, going into Karachi was... Yes. <laughs> that we didn't want to go through again. No. Uh, no, um, no it, was, it was no problem at all. Mm. No, you were obviously on instruments, because you've yeah. got to see where you go, where, where, what you're doing. Yeah. But there was no problem at all, no. And th- was there anything attached to your flight uniform to detect radiation? There, we had got little badges, um, but they weren't, I'm not sure they were issued to us on that first exercise. I'm, I'm not sure at all. I don't think we were. It's when they started going, when we moved on to the next slot, uh, they started getting a bit more excited about, you know, what, how many, how the dose rate was going to happen to us. Um, was that because the weapon, that they were moving on to yeah. bigger detonations? Well, these we were doing at uh, Maralinga on the first lot, the, uh, to finish off Mosaic, um, were really triggers for the H-bomb. Right. Yeah, these were pure, pure A-bomb So they type. were kiloton rather than megaton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, they, the, the, um, the megaton one was ten times as powerful as the triggers that we, we were playing around with down in Maralinga, yeah. That, that, that was as easy as that. And uh, so, yeah, that was all 
job done until, well, then we had the next phase, what we were going to do. They hadn't got anything for us to do for six months after we'd done this pre this exercise. Um, what are you going to do with us? And they said, well, why don't you go home for Christmas? All the way back to England. So he said, oh, and how? And they said, ah, SS Strath neighbor is leaving Adelaide docks in a couple of three days' time. Pack your bags and get on board. So there was 18 of us air crew and 40 ground crew got on board this and had a delightful trip back. Thank you very much. The Suez War was on at the time, so we couldn't go through the Suez, so we went through, um, well, after so leaving... you went the scenic route, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, after leaving um, Adelaide, we went to Fremantle, Fremantle, then straight across the Indian Ocean to Durban. And we had two or three days in Durban, you know, sightseeing and things, lovely. Then on around the corner to Cape Town, thank you very much, up to the top of Table Mountain and things, and then back on board, and away we went again. Uh, I think it was Tenerife we called it, called out on the way there. One, one of the Channel uh, Canary Islands anyway. And then on to Tilbury, where we disembarked, and it took all of a month to do this trip. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and they said, when we, said, we got off, and they're at the normal... Uh, officer in, in charge of uh, disembarking passengers and say, right, you're all on six weeks leave. So we said, oh, thanks very much. <laughs> and sent us off home yeah. for six weeks. And, yeah. and, and so because of your knowledge, your expertise of flying through atom bomb clouds, yeah. you were then brought back in six months' time? What happened then after Christmas and into the new year, um, they said, right, you better go back to Australia now. Um, we've got nothing for you to do here. Your aircraft are out in Australia. Um, you better go and get refamiliarized on, on the flying side with those and, and run them in before we go, then you go onto, onto Christmas Island. And that was, that was, uh, that was a good thing. We went out, back out, um, to Australia in uh, Qantas Super Constellation which seemed to stop everywhere compared with how we, we'd done it with a, you know, our cameras. We, they, there was uh, about three stops to our one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yes, we went out there. We had um, uh, two or three nights in Singapore where we stayed in Raffles Hotel, which Very enhanced nice. our business. <laughs> <laughs> uh, things. And then it was um, carried on and into Sydney. And uh, we they went by Viscount down to um, to Adelaide, yeah. But uh, yeah, that that was it. But it was all of a sudden we we worked it out that the SS Strathnaver and the crew had looked after us remarkably well um, on on the ship going out. And they said, oh, they suddenly realised they got a bunch of officers here who could you know enjoy themselves. So we were invited immediately up onto the deck the the main deck where they operate or their operations are, are uh, to see what the ship was all about and operating when we were invited and they said right be here again midday tomorrow pilots and navigators we've got a job for you to you lot to do so we said, oh so we all trooped up there on, on you know the first available day and they said right pilots you're going to check the steering gear of the ship so we said, well, that sounds exciting. So we each had to go and turn in the handle. And it, it, you know, it was normally on autopilot, and that was it. And the navigators, you've got to take the sun shots to, to find out where we are. So they had a job to do as well. And, of course, they, they, theirs was important. that They had exactly logged the distance because that distance was used as the, um, the raffle for the passenger who got the nearest distance on the day of going across. So they, they were, had to be very accurate on that one. But you know, that, was, that was enjoyable. But going back and, and um, on the story, when we got to Sydney, we said, ah, I wonder whether the Strath neighbour is back. And sure enough, it was in Sydney. We were, no, we'll leave it till it gets to Adelaide, and then we'll go invade them. And we did. <laughs> yeah. A rotten lot that we were, yeah. And and were you flying from Australia to Christmas Island? Um, that, that was a long haul. Um, we went up to Amberley, which is just west of um, Brisbane, um, and then Brisbane to Nandi in Fiji, and then a really long haul of 2,000 miles over shark-infested sea. 
um, over the equator and the international dateline, all on one trip. And it was 2,000 miles with no navigation aids other than the two navigators working their butts off on sun position lines with a periscopic sextant, which we had had put in to what had been fitted to the B6s, the, the new aeroplanes that we had. They had fitted radio compasses for us, but they ran out of, after 100 miles, they ran out and were useless, absolutely useless. At Christmas Island, they, they had a DF situation where they could call steers and everything else, so that could accurately get us to the island, and, and that worked. But it, it was a long haul in pretty cold conditions at that high altitude. Because I guess altitude. if you miss it, you're, you're, there's nothing bye bye. else there. <laughs> bye bye. Yes. Wow. Uh, and so you were actually based on Christmas Island. Oh, yeah, that yeah, that yeah, was yeah, the, yeah. the air base. The target for um, the Valiants on, on the bomb, the bomb aiming place was Malden Island, which is 400 miles to the south, or just you know, west of south. Um, and that was there uh, and set up as the target mm. with a whole load of um, trucks and things on there just to see what, what damage that could be, be done mm. with all the blasts and things. Yeah, we were all you know, accommodated in tents and things and getting used to life on, on Christmas Island yeah. before we got going. I hear the crabs are a bit aggressive on that. Uh, the land crabs particularly. You know, yeah. um, we, you know, we shared tents between us. And, uh, but the thing to do was to dig a trench round big enough so the tra- crabs couldn't get through it. Right. <laughs> and you'd wake up in the morning and there'd be all these... Crabs in, well, in, in, the, the trench. in the trench, yeah, like, you know, yeah. but not getting at us. You know, yeah. you know. One or two people did have nasty experiences with them. But I just, yeah. you know, and uh, The hermit crabs were okay, but it was the land crabs that weren't. You know. Right. And the mess life, well, the army cooks were do, did a marvellous job, mm. re- really helped out there. Provisions were, gin was 2D. <laughs> wow. Well, two old pence. Two old pence. <laughs> oh, you, you wouldn't even find a coin for that nowadays, no. I don't think. No. And, uh, but the, the expensive bit was the gin, yeah. it was the tonic. <laughs> a, a small yeah. bottle of tonics that was 6D. <laughs> right. Wow. Wow. And, and with, it, with these larger weapons, were you having to fly at a higher altitude for these no. missions? Um, now, my was job the was a peculiar one. They needed somebody to be a relay, a VHF relay in between the target area and the base, mm. operations at base uh, on, on Christmas Island because the VHF range was not sufficient with the equipment in from those days. But they could do it with an aeroplane orbited halfway between the two. Right. And the Valiant was virtually on the same thing, but he was on an orbit slightly higher than us. I would be the first aircraft off on this exercise, on, on this, what happened on this trip. We were going off there and positioned ourselves in a race, what we called a racetrack pattern, set up, and uh, then the Valiant would come off almost immediately, I took off apparently almost immediately afterwards. I always remember um, Wing Commander Hubbard, who was flying it, seeing me in the mess afterwards, he says, Christ, I thought you were never going to get airborne, he told me. I said, well, I... I had got an aeroplane full of fuel. The temperature was up well into the 30s, and the humidity was pretty hot. The poor old aeroplane was struggling to get airborne as it was, and we could have been shark and, shark and fodder if an engine had failed. But yeah. there we are. So, yes, that, that's why we're doing that. He says, cool. <laughs> we were okay. We had, we had a fairly light valiant to go and do the job. And that's what, they, that's what we did. And we did that orbit. And uh, when... We we were on the heard the countdown when and it was going to be exploded at eight at eight thousand feet the weapon. Obviously, we saw a flash, but by that time we were going well away for and did you 200 have to miles. wear protective no goggles no. or anything? No, we were two hundred miles away from it right. because it was being aimed at the island, and we were yeah. two hundred miles well clear. So we were considering it, and we were in safe territory. Mm. As soon as we we'd done that, and I'd been cleared from my duties, that the Valiant was on its way back. That my sniffer mates were climbing up to high altitude to get yeah. in in through it, the two aeroplanes, but I was job then was to go and survey the island immediately um, to see what you know, superficial damage or any serious damage had been done to Malden Island. 
I mean, we all, from what we could see, we were skating over it. Not, not a, not a great deal. And uh, fuel by that time was getting a little bit tight. So, what sort, of, what sort of altitude were you over the island? To... Over the island, we let down to low level, thousand feet. Wow. Yeah. And you were cameras running to, or, or well, was it I had just not, a visual I had observation. A visual observation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's all we had. Well, I wow, had the radiation levels must have been quite high. I, well, they were going up. Yeah. Yeah. Everything was going up. Right. Um, as, as they do in the bombs. And yeah. uh, from, from the time place it detonates, it doesn't go down. It, yeah. it rises, obviously. Yeah. And that, that's what was going. They, they did, as I understood it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm no scientist, so I, I, I don't know what, what's left. On, I would imagine there's got to be some radiation still left on the, at ground level. Well, it was my blast, blast effect yeah. was, was what they were keen, right. keen to see and do yeah. And it did. It set the odd thing on fire. You could see the flames and looking yeah. around. But that was it. So we did round an orbit round and uh, and got away. I had sitting on my jump seat uh, on the on the camera a wing com- who was a wing commander, a wing commander Denning in those days, who had done the original one on Totem uh, over at Emu Field uh, three years beforehand. And he seemed a bit cut out that he couldn't fly the aeroplane himself, but no. <laughs> <laughs> My plane. My plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, yes, and that, you know, it was quite a, quite a long trip, yes. Yeah. And how many of those did you, did you I, that, I did. That was the first. There were three grapples. Three, right. three made up the grapple. The second one I missed out on completely, and the third one I did exactly the same act again. So I never really got into penetrating the H-bomb clouds. And one of the reasons was that... The, with my nose, the shape of my nose, we couldn't get a proper seal um, you know, for the oxygen and everything else. We borrowed American um, equipment as well to try and get a seal. And they said, oh, OK, we'll give you a safe job. And I got the safer job of doing the relay. Well, that was <laughs> and the possibly a, a, <laughs> a <bonus>. lucky break <laughs> yeah, for you yeah, there. Yeah. So, yes, that, that was it. But uh, I, in between, the lovely in between, I had two trips to Honolulu and back. VIP passengers who rated a Canberra to take them up to <laughs> to Honolulu and, and possibly wait two or three days and then come back. And I did that twice. And that was very pleasant to go in the officers' um, mess or whatever they like to call the officers' club. Yeah. Used to stay in there, in there, and I lived quite well on the American fodder. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I think I was, I was talking to somebody about couldn't believe the stakes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that were available, and uh, it was the first time he'd seen a serviette as well <laughs> wasn't sure what to, what to do yeah well from the, you know the food or the plain food we had on christmas on and this was really making up for yeah. it and we sort of tucked into sort yeah. of set set ourselves up for the in a yeah. store was this hickam field hickam field yeah yeah, yeah okay yeah. and that, that was you know the american controllers were suddenly realized it got a load of brits who didn't really speak their language but yeah. <laughs> but no it all worked rather well and yeah. uh, we 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 didn't have any incidents. I understand later on there were one or two incidents going up there, um, people getting lost and that. But uh, no, bless my navigators, they were, they did the job properly. Yeah. And of course, you had a certain amount of cover from outbound from Christmas Island. You, you they could give you bearings and things, so you yeah. could correct it. And then going inbound, um, the Americans were starting to get some reasonable navigation air um, uh, radar. Mm. And they could pick you up and help help you around. So it it, it, it did help, yeah. It made, it made us feel a bit more confident. <laughs> and, and was Christmas Island your last uh, missions with the with the atom bomb? No, the no, 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 no. Oh no, oh no. <laughs> oh no, they didn't let me go that long. No, no. I did one or two other trips. Like aeroplanes were going to go inevitably unserviceable. Couldn't be fixed on Christmas Island. Had to be got back somehow. And so in various states of serviceability, we were flying aeroplanes down um, to Fiji and to Nandi there. And a crew would come up, because we still got two, two, two or three spare crews left in Australia, who would come up and take the aircraft back to Australia and get for it to be fit, for it to be fixed. Um, we used Canton Island, which is quite a narrow strip, it really is, and around, around another lagoon in, in a similar way. But that cut down the distance to um, to Fiji, that was for sure, and helped a bit on, on that one. 
And then we were there on that trip. Um, yes. From there, it was back to Christmas Island for the last, last bomb uh, to, to really go off. And, uh, and then yeah, get everything back to, to Australia. I got a touch of Asian flu there, which was a bit nasty in Fiji. But that, that was, you know, fixed by a doctor giving me some pills and things and put me back on, onto a Hastings aeroplane and take me, took me back to Christmas Island. But there on board this Hastings, what was the cargo? Nothing but booze. Crates and crates of gin, whiskey, you name it. It was full. Priority delivery. A priority delivery. Keep the troops happy. And (laughs) but I was was not feeling at all like any of it. (laughs) Yeah. And then we did the last last one as well. And uh, that was it. And then we started ferrying all the aeroplanes back to our base at Edinburgh Field. Ready for the next one, which was Antler. An exercise Antler. And that um was in the yeah, that was in the autumn as well of, of uh, 57 we got to now. There were three, there were going to be three more tests there on that. Well, I forget which one I was allocated to in the end. I'm not, I'm not so sure it wasn't the third. But, uh, yeah, we lived in the mess up at, uh, at Maralinga Airfield and the life was good. Mm. A, a quick side aside. Do you mind another side story here? No, no, no absolutely. <laughs> we love a tangent. Uh, um, we had a, a, a blooming good bunch of aircrew there. There was a bunch from the Varsity aircraft as well, which I was helping to fly. And, uh, yep, they, we had a poker school in the mess every night, you know, after, after a meal. There we were all, because the mess was the only solid building on the airfield that we were in, in tents otherwise. And, uh, the, the, you know, there it was and playing poker one night. And then all of a sudden they shout, Sputnik's going over. And it was the first Sputnik going over. So we had the troop outside, pretty good to see what this light go through the yeah. sky. And it was the first Sputnik. Wow. Wandered back in the mess and blow me down. The pile of money was still there. Nobody had pinched it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, yeah. And then I, I did my last trip um, as a sampler yeah. and going through it. I'd been tracking the bombs before, but... As a, a proper sampler and getting it all, all on board and uh, tucking it away. Um, and then we got back and we went back to Edinburgh Field. Ah, now what's happening? And they said, ah, we think you've done enough and it's, you, you better go home before we, you get any more radiation. And they weren't. Nobody had a clue how much total mm. we, we'd already so. But the estimate from the medics was, well, you've probably done enough for all the flying that you've done. So you off you, off. and they sent me home from there. And that, that was, that was an even better trip of going back because, as I say, we had three varsity aircraft out there. So make sure that they didn't drift into the site for the, for the bombs going off. Oh, and there was one, one I must tell you about was the, uh, and they we were going to set off a night one, and they did them from the towers, okay? Mm. And the, this night one was going to be set off from the tower, and some wise bloke said, they're enjoying themselves too much on the airfield. Get all that air crew up here to come and observe this from five miles away. Mm. Five miles away from an atom bomb? You've got to be joking. No. So, and well, they did, and they positioned us there. Gave us this briefing. Back where we had to have our backs to where the ground zero was going to be, cover your eyes up, closed, and everything else with your fingers. And to this day, Ian, I can still see the skeleton of my fingers through the whole through that flat when that flash went off. Absolutely incredible! You wouldn't have yeah. believed it. And then that we could watch the blast because the low level of stratus had come in at the time, and you could watch the shock wave coming through that low level of stratus and hit us. Yeah. And how strong was that from five miles? Quite strong. One of my mates was standing on a mound and he got blown off it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Picked himself up, dusted himself down. Five miles away. And presumably they've calculated that the fallout's going to go the other way. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we were, we were fairly safe anyway. Yeah. It's only a little toy that was. It's <laughs> Still, five miles is very. Well, it's it just pretty adjacent. Very close. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, Do you know, know what size that one was? I haven't well, a clue. No, we weren't privy to yeah, anything yeah. like that. No. 
Um, so was that your last experience of? Yeah, um, as I say, we they said pack your bags, you're going home. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, by that time, I was quite good pals with the Varsity lot, and they they were finished as well, and we're going to fly the three aeroplanes back to the UK. So I said, well, I can be a co-pilot on that and go back there, mm-hmm. nice and comfy, and give the uh, the other captain a, a free. And we did this, and it took us three weeks. <laughs> All the different places we stopped on the way back. Yeah. It was quite hilarious. It really was. In the end, um, the, the man I was with, uh, the captain I was with, we we did leg and leg about. I, I was in the left. He said, "Come on, you you know enough about flying aeroplanes. We're, we'll convert you to the varsity on the way home." <laughs> and he blew me down. He did, so I became yeah. qualified on the varsity. So that was another one for the another log, one for the log, log book. book. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, yeah. So really, that was it. And um, yeah. as far as that was concerned, I was concerned with a, well, our sister squadron, 542 Squadron, which was at Western Zoiland when we arrived there to, 70, to form 76. 542 had Canberra B2s, but stripped down for a different purpose, um, overload tanks in the Bombay and things like that. Um, but they were doing high-altitude sampling, of the high altitude from the bombs that had been going off around all around the world at this time. Right. So, so like the from, French tests. And... Yeah, French tests and things like that. And they were based in Gibraltar, based in Canada. There was a per- virtually a permanent base down in Australia in Mel- near Melbourne. Um, a couple of aeroplanes down there for that as well. So I was involved with, with that doing, and it was what they were high, getting up to 47,000 feet with those dear old aeroplanes. Um, you're doing the job yeah. again to, uh, to take the samples, just sampling from it. Because yeah. I, I, I seem to remember you saying that originally the plan was to just ditch the aircraft. We're, by resting the aeroplanes well away on the airfield mm-hmm. until they cooled off, as we say, cooled off from the radiation, um, and then they, blokes, okay, properly dressed, could then work on the air, out exterior there, but not the engines because they were obviously going to be, as we call, radiation hot, right through, having sucked all the air in and pushed it out the back end. Make sure you follow us in your podcast app so you don't miss out on future episodes of the Avro Heritage Museum podcast.